Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, let's open our Bibles to John chapter 14 and continue our journey through this fourth gospel. We come to the second half of John 14. And this wonderful passage where Jesus is in his final message to his disciples and he is wanting to comfort them. We are about 24 hours out from Jesus' betrayal and crucifixion. And he is speaking in his private ministry to his disciples. And he is going to transition here after Robert's excellent message through the first half of John 14 where Jesus is reminding his disciples that he is going ahead of them to prepare a place for them, the heavenly hope of every follower of Jesus, and that he is the only way. Now, in verses 15 through the end of the chapter, Jesus is going to transition into a teaching, an explanation of the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian. Now, John chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17, really, is pretty much all Jesus speaking. These three chapters are called the farewell discourse, or really four chapters, with John 17 being his high priestly prayer. And one of the main themes in these three chapters, 14, 15, and 16, is Jesus doing his most extensive teaching in all of the Gospels, on the work and the person and the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian. And so in just a moment, we're going to read through this text, but I want to have, I want to have a category in your head. I want to have a, a doctrinal thought sort of hanging above everything that we say over the next few weeks as we work through these few chapters, and it is the triune nature of God or the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is three in one. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's, he's, he's not three separate gods, but He's three in one. It's the mystery of mysteries. It's, the I think, the most beautiful, incomprehensible, inscrutable truth of all, that God is three in one. And so I want us... I want us as we approach this passage to have that beautiful, glorious, foundational doctrine looming over us in a a beautiful way. And as we work through this passage and as we see things that just seem sort of inscrutable and things that are hard to piece together in the nature of God, let me encourage you to let that cause you not to question or doubt, but to wonder at the glory and the incomprehensibility of God, which is in itself a reason to worship God. He can be known sufficiently for salvation, but he can't be known exclusively. If he could be, he wouldn't be God. So with that, let me work through this chapter here. I'm going to give us a a kind of outline to hang our thoughts on here. There's three things that I want us to think about in this passage. Our helper, our love, and our peace. Our helper, our love, and our peace. Let me pray one more time. And then we'll work through this passage. Lord, thank you, for this, thank you for this text. Thank you for this teaching that Jesus gives us on the Holy Spirit. We live in a world that misunderstands the Holy Spirit. We oftentimes in church culture misunderstand the Holy Spirit. But help us now understand our helper better. 
Do your work, I pray, through us as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. First, let's look at our helper. Verse 15, Jesus is speaking now. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot give because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet in a, yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. All right, let's pause there. Now, admittedly, this passage, really all of Jesus' teaching here in verses 14, 15, and 16, need to be read slowly. Jesus is putting together a bunch of truth, and this is one of those passages, this is one of those portions of Scripture that we would do well to, to read slowly because there's so much in here that we need to see. First, I want us to think about what Jesus is saying in these verses about the Holy Spirit. Now, he calls him our helper. This is really a, almost a kind of insufficient word to describe all that's going on here. The, the Greek word that is translated into helper is a word called paraclete. And it's a word that, that, that carries with it so much more meaning than just helper. The word paraclete is used only by John here in the Gospel of John in these few chapters, and then once in 1 John chapter 2 where John is speaking about Jesus. It, it doesn't just mean helper. It means our, our advisor, our counselor, our, our forever companion, our advocate as somebody arguing our case in a, in a sense in a, in, a, in a courtroom before the Lord. There's so much packed into this word, and the translators of English into most of our Bibles have just had to decide on one word, and the word that seems to fit best, but certainly doesn't encompass everything that's going on with this word, is our helper. And in these six or seven verses, verses 15 through 21, Jesus says so many things about the way the Holy Spirit helps us. And so I want to just quickly briskly walk through these verses and look at what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. In fact, there's seven things quickly. First, verse 16 tells us that he is with us forever. He says, I will give you another helper, meaning the Holy Spirit, who will be with you forever. I think about this foreverness of God's presence with his people through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I think about David's word in Psalm 139 where he says, where can I go from your spirit? I, I go to the depths of the sea, you're there. I ascend to the heavens, you're there. So where can I go from your spirit? He's always with us. And then Jesus' last words to the disciples after the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and 20, he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And Jesus says these words right as he is about to ascend. So physically, 
Jesus is no longer with his disciples, but he is with them. How is he with them? How is God the Son and God the Father with his people? Through God the Spirit. So God, in a sense, is with us through his Spirit. He's not removed. He's not distanced. He's with his people forever. Secondly, Jesus says he is the Spirit of truth. Verse 17, he's even the Spirit of truth. Verse 26 that we'll read in just a moment says that this spirit of truth will will teach us all things and bring to our remembrance all that I've said. And he does that through the word. So how is the spirit of God, the spirit of truth, through the word of God? Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about Scripture and its relationship to the spirit. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God. This breath of God is a symbol, oftentimes of Scripture, of the Spirit of God. So you can see the triune nature of God there at work, even in verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And then Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, Peter is speaking about Old Testament prophecy in this context. But as we looked at when we preached through 2 Peter, we can apply Peter's truths about Old Testament prophecy to the New Testament. And this is what Peter says about the role of the Holy Spirit in bringing about the Word of God. He says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So how is the Holy Spirit our helper? Well, he's with us forever, and he's the spirit of truth. And how is he the spirit of truth? This spirit of truth that he guides us into is not some subjective, sentimental feeling that exists in us apart from his word, but it agrees with, it illuminates his word. The spirit that dwells in his people draws us to be able to understand the word, and this is truth. Sometimes Christians, I think wrongly, in our very subjective, sentimental culture that often has been dominated by what I think is poor teaching, will unwittingly cause people to pit the Word of God against the Spirit of God as if those two things are at times at odds. And nothing could be further from the truth. The Spirit of God wrote the Word of God. Don't don't fall into that error of of thinking that the Word somehow restricts us and the Spirit frees us from the confines of the Word to some sort of spiritual liberation. No, that is not true. The Spirit frees us to rightly understand the Word which leads us into all truth which is good for us, which is actually the way of freedom. So He is the Spirit of truth. Thirdly, he, is, he cannot be received by the world. Look at what Jesus says in the middle there of verse 17. He's even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. So the spirit of God is not just this sort of religious notion that people can just sort of access whenever they want for their own purposes. Jesus is really dividing the world into two 
parts, those that are in Christ by the Spirit and those that are not in the world. And he is saying that the world is unable. It cannot receive him. It doesn't know him. Why does the world not know him? Because the world is still blinded by sin. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says this, verses 4 through 6, speaking of unbelievers, speaking of those whom God has not awakened by his sovereign grace. He says of those that are in the world that do not know the Lord. This is stark language, but this is biblical language. And if you want to be a biblical Christian, which I think is the only type of Christian there truly is, but if you want to be a biblically informed Christian, you need to understand how the Bible classifies humanity. You are either in Christ or out of Christ. You are either in Christ or in the world. You are either dead in your sins or you are alive in Christ. And here, Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 is speaking about why the world cannot receive him. He says, in their case, speaking of unbelievers or the world, the God of this world, lowercase g, meaning Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So you might be thinking, oh my gosh, is this some sort of titanic struggle between good and evil? Is God somehow bound to the blindness that Satan has caused in the minds and eyes, spiritual eyes of unbelievers, so that they can't see, they can't access the Holy Spirit? No, because verse 6 says, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Friends, this explains so much about the Christian life. It means that when God intends to save a person, he overrides their spiritual blindness, which is caused by Satan to some degree and their sin. He overrides it and he gives that person spiritual vision so that they can see, and we'll see in just a moment, he does that by the Holy Spirit. And so friends, the world is divided into two categories. Those who have the Holy Spirit, those who are in Christ, those who are made alive, those who do not have the Holy Spirit, who do not know Christ, and who are blinded. And, and as a result, they hate the Lord. Friends, we see this played out in our culture, our ever-increasing culture, people that hate. Here's, here's, an, here's, a, here's a fruit of this kind of blindness. We are seeing an ever-increasing intensity in our culture to hate its creator. We are seeing Romans 1 lived out before us in the confusion of gender. People that have biological parts that God gave them are shaking their fist at a creator and saying, no, I am my own sovereign. You can't make me. I am not this. I am that. Friends, that is spiritual delusion. And then, if you saw some of the news reports of some of the protests going on at the Supreme Court yesterday. I saw one picture, and I say this with sympathy because it breaks my heart. I saw a picture of a pregnant young lady protesting the decision of the Supreme Court, and on her exposed belly, she had the words written, not a human. And she looked to be about eight and a half months pregnant. Friends, 
I say this not as a, like a rally. I'm not throwing red meat to the conservative theological crowd. That's, I'm not trying to stir you up with more angst towards our culture. That's not it. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get you to see spiritual realities. Now, there's all sorts of things that we can say about this. But, but, but what it is, is it is a blind world. Are, are Christians blind sometimes too? Does, does salvation give you a 20-20 spiritual vision? Of course not. There's all sorts of things we can say to critique us. But right now, I'm wanting to draw this distinction about the world and how it is unable to see God, receive God. And, and it's blinded. And, and, and when, when the world is, is blind, it's not just a kind of neutral place. It's a world that hates its creator and, as Romans 1 says, suppresses the truth. And that's what we see being played out in front of us. So it cannot, the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit. Fourthly, back to the good news, back to a more positive aspect of the Holy Spirit, is He dwells in us. He dwells in His people. We just read how God does that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. God overrides spiritual blindness. He shines in our face. He awakens our heart. He dwells in us. That's what Jesus says in verse 17. The world can't receive Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him. Why do you know Him? Because He dwells with you and he will be in you he dwells with you he's with you romans 8 chapter 9 says this about the dwelling of the holy spirit with his people he dwells not just with us but in us think about the the glory oh my goodness we could spend hours just meditating on the dwelling of the holy spirit not just with us but jesus goes even further he says that he is in us And this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells not just with you, but in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So here's the the most primary thing, one of the most primary things that we can say about what it means to be a believer is for your dead heart to be made alive, alive and for the Spirit of God to be dwelling in in you. If you're a Christian, the truest thing about you is that the third person of the Trinity lives in you. And this is what Paul concludes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22. The same thing. He says, in him, meaning Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So it's not just an individual sport that we're playing here. It's a team sport. We have the Spirit of God that dwells in us, and we are joined together with other Christians to grow something glorious to God, which is the church, for the display of His glory amongst the nations. He doesn't just dwell. He's not just with you. He's not just a guy who tags along with you through life's valleys and mountaintops. He dwells in you. You've been made alive. God lives in you is what Paul is saying here. That's glorious, friends. That's glorious. Gosh, I could go on all sorts of rabbit trails about all the implications of that. I mean, just think of the implications about how, what, what that has to say with how we treat one another, even Christians who drive us absolutely nuts. C.S. Lewis says, you don't, you don't meet anybody that's a mere mortal. You meet eternal beings, and especially Christians, even those that you are really frustrated with. Have Christ in them, the hope of glory. 
And that's what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. He doesn't just dwell in us. Five, he adopts us. Look at verse 18 again. He says, yet a little while, or verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So how does Jesus not leave his disciples as orphans? How, how does he come to them? Well, in a sense, we could say that he comes to them after the resurrection and he shows himself to them. Yes, that is the truth. But how does Jesus actually leave them not as orphans because after he comes to them some 40 days later, he ascends into heaven. And so what does it mean that Jesus doesn't leave them as orphans? Well, he's just prayed for the Holy Spirit to come and the Holy Spirit does the work of the triune God to adopt us into his family. And this idea of adoption and no longer being orphans is picked up by Paul again in Romans chapter 8 when he calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of adoption. Let me read it to you. Romans chapter 8 verses 14 and 15. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Again, we could go on so many rabbit trails of application here. He dwells in us, and he doesn't just dwell in us as individual silos, but he adopts us into a family, and we are now brothers and sisters together with all who call upon the name of the Lord, and we are part of a family. But he doesn't just dwell in us. He doesn't just adopt us. And this isn't necessarily in chronological order, but he also, sixth, he regenerates and will promise to resurrect us. That's what Jesus says in verse 19. Again, Jesus is just teaching. He's given us a kind of theology of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, back in our text, verse 19, he says, yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, meaning he's going to the cross, he's going to die, but you will see me. He's going to show himself to his disciples, and then he's going to make this, this theological statement about the consequences of his resurrection. Verse 19, because I live, you also will live. What does that mean? I think it means that Jesus is saying that because I, and this is the essence of the gospel, Jesus saying that he's going to the cross, the wrath. Friends, this is the gospel. This is why Jesus has died. Not, not merely as a sign of love, not merely as a sign of sacrificial example or leadership, but Jesus goes to the cross to bear the wrath of God that should have been his people's. Our sin. Jesus bears the wrath. His perfect substitute is offered as a sacrifice. The, the biblical word is propitiation. He lays himself down on the cross. He dies, and then he rises again in victory over sin, death, and the grave. So he hasn't just taken the penalty for sin. He's satisfied it. He's extinguished it. He's drank all of God's wrath for our sin, and then he rises again in victory as the victor over death hell, and the grave. And now, that's the gospel. Jesus does that. He rises again, and he commands all of his people to repent. And when the gospel of Jesus, the good news of what God has done, hits a human heart, 
What God does with that is he uses, the Holy Spirit comes, uses the news, the communication of Jesus' sacrificial death for our sin and victorious resurrection. The Holy Spirit takes that news, it hits a human heart, and it makes it alive. It regenerates us. And that's Jesus' reasoning here. He says that this Holy Spirit will take that news and it will make it yours because I live you also will live. Now, what's the link between what Jesus says there? Because you live, I will also live. Well, where, how is the Holy Spirit at play in that? What's the connection of the Holy Spirit there? Well, that's where we need to read Scripture with Scripture. And this is what Paul says about the Holy Spirit's work in salvation and making a person alive. Because right now, I've just explained to you the very, the very foundation of salvation. You're dead in your sins. You deserve God's wrath eternally. Jesus substitutes himself, his perfect life. God in the flesh, truly man, truly God, bears the wrath of God, satisfies it, takes our punishment away, rises in victory over sin, death, and the grave. But how, how, here's the question, how is Jesus' victorious life ever going to become ours? How's it going to become appropriated? How's it going to become mine? How's it actually going to make me alive? Paul answers that question for us in Ephesians and Titus. First Ephesians, he says, Ephesians 2, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So here we see that God, our triune God, is bringing about are passing from spiritual death to spiritual life. He's resuscitating us. The, the theological term is he's regenerating. He's, he's taking our dead heart and he's giving us a new heart. He's making us alive. He's causing us, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1, to be born again. But how does that happen? Well, Paul gives us even more detail in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He says, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So there we see that's where the Spirit comes in. So you have God planning salvation, God the Father, you have God the Son accomplishing salvation, and you have the Spirit of God being the third person of the Trinity that actually hits our dead hearts gives us a new one, spiritually speaking, and makes us alive and regenerates us. Friends, this is glorious. And this is what Jesus is saying about the Holy Spirit in your life. He makes you alive. You were dead. Your ears were clogged. Your eyes were blind. Your heart wasn't beating. And the Holy Spirit takes the message of the gospel, the communication, whether you read it or heard it shared in a conversation or preached or taught, he takes that news, he brings it to your heart, and he quickens, he gives life, he opens up your ears, he causes the scales to fall from your eyes, he makes your ears hear and your heart to beat, and you believe you're alive, and now you can trust in Jesus, and this is all the Holy Spirit bringing this about. But not only does he regenerate us, make us alive, he also promises our resurrection. He says, because I live, you also will live. 
And gosh, I could go a lot further in this, but for the interest of time, I'll just, just read this one passage, Romans chapter 8, verse 11. Paul says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So not only does He make you alive right now, but there's a future aspect to this because you're going to die, likely, before Jesus comes back and your body's going to go into the ground, your spirit's going to go to heaven. But there's going to be a final resurrection of the saints where you will be resurrected, your spirit will join with your glorified body and you will be with the Lord forever. I don't have time to unpack that, but read Romans or 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So it doesn't just guarantee our present regeneration. The Spirit guarantees our future resurrection. And then finally, the seventh thing that Jesus touches on, again, this is not an exclusive list of all the things that the Holy Spirit does, but this is just Jesus in a few sentences giving us this unimaginable, glorious theology of the Holy Spirit, at least in part. Verse 20, he says, In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So this is a description of the Christian post-resurrection that has been born again, regenerated, indwelt by the Spirit. This is how Jesus describes the, the, the spiritual geographic location of a Christian. He says that I am in my Father, and you're in me, and I in you. <laughs> Which leads us to the seventh truth about what the Spirit does is He unites us, He binds us, He makes us one with Christ. We're united with Christ. We're in Him. He's in us. We're hidden with Him. This is how Paul says it in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Listen to verse 3. For you've died, meaning your old self, you've died, and your life, in other words, your new life, your regenerated life, your, your born-again life, is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. There is, there is definitiveness to verses 3 and 4. I want to read it again. For you've died, your old self has died. Your new life, now what's your new, are you kind of dangling out there just wondering whether or not you'll make it to the end? No, your life is hidden with Christ, hidden with Christ in God. I mean, come on, if you, if you don't believe in the doctrine of eternal security or the perseverance of the saints, then you have not closely read Colossians chapter 3, verse 3. This is the description of the Christian. Your life, your new life, your born-again life is hidden with Christ in God. I don't know how to move my hands to try and convince you any more of that truth. Think about the prepositions. Picture it in your mind. You're hidden with Christ in God. And what does this guarantee? Come on now, make this practical. Make this theology practical. This is true of you, no matter, even if you're going through hell on earth, so to speak. Just because we are 
facing some temporary trial doesn't all of a sudden make this not true. And this is the implication. This is the, this is the conclusion that Paul makes about the security, the position of the believer that has been brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. When Christ, verse 4, who is your life appears, meaning when he's coming back, then you will, will, not maybe, not might, you will, if you are in Christ, you will appear with him in glory. Now, before we move on quickly, and that, I spent most of my time there in point one, and we're going to handle the other two quickly. Just, is it, how, how, okay, Brad, that's, that's, that's good theology. I hope you agree with that. What does this have to do with my Tuesday? Well, uh, if you are a believer, you need to go into next Tuesday, which is completely unknown to you, and which may, which may hold news for you that may turn your earthly world upside down. You need to go into whatever you're facing this Tuesday or next year or 10 years from now or whatever. You have the great privilege to go into it knowing that the truest thing about you is not what that temporary news says about you or how it makes you feel, but the truest thing about you, dearly beloved in Christ, is that you are in him by the Spirit and there is no getting you out of that. Life will be very hard at times, but you are His. And somebody says, well, well how, how does this practically help me? Friends, this is the battle of sanctification, is knowing these great truths and living from these great truths and hearing them and reminding ourselves of them and preaching the gospel to ourselves so that when we are in that moment of fear, of tribulation, of stress, of trial, of pain, we take these truths because our heart has been there. Our heart has ran the path to them so often that we bring them down from the glories of heaven into our very moment and we hold on to God by remembering that truth. You see, the Christian life is not a bunch of escape plans so that you can live a sort of more functional life so that you can avoid trouble. It is knowing, celebrating, fastening yourselves to the great truths of the glory of the gospel in your trouble. In your trouble. That's how you apply it. That's how you apply it. And just one other little thought about how you apply it. How, you might think, well, how does this help me fight sin and discouragement? How does this glorious, lofty view of what the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer, how does it help me fight temptation? Well, the more I, aware I am of what's dwelling in me makes it harder for me to give over to the old man. The way I fight residual sin and temptation in my life is not by gritting my teeth and reaching down deep inside for some sort of more willpower, but to go inside and find, what do I find there? Not a reservoir of my strength, but I I am reminded of what's inside of me. It's Christ and His Spirit. That's who I am. And so 
I can, I can say no to this thing. I can keep my head on straight. I can keep walking. I can fight this thing because the truest thing about me is not that I am defined by this thing, but I am the Lord's. And by the way, the Spirit has knit me together with a group of people who are all going through their own similar fights of sin, and they will understand. And so I can run to them too. Well, let's hurry on. That was our helper, and that's the bulk of what I want to say today. But let's just look at our love. Verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot. I often think, I've thought of this, you know, this poor guy Judas, who's not Iscariot. You know, like, if you're going to be, if you're going to share a name with a guy, that's a tough name to share. Poor guy. Judas, parentheses, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So there's much that we could say here. The main point I wanted to make is what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit, but now there's this transition into what would this produce in the life of a Christian Judas is basically saying, well, Lord, why are you coming just to us and not to the world? And in a strange sort of way, Jesus doesn't really answer his question directly. But he then goes to further describe, I think, what should be the fruit of regeneration, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in someone's life, that if you truly are born again, there will be some aspect, not perfect, but obedience in your life. And so, I said earlier, one of the truest things that you can say about a believer is that the Spirit of God dwells in him. Well, likewise, one of the truest things that needs to be said about a true believer is that they obey the Lord. Now, of course, we don't do this perfectly. This is not to say that we will never sin. In fact, John, the same John, writes 1 John at the end of the New Testament. And in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, he says, if we say... We have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and and his word is not in us. And so when I think of John's words here in 1 John, I think of that wonderful old quote by that old theologian in in England back in the 1800s, he, he, he uh, was a friend of Spurgeon's, and his name is escaping me, but I quote him so often. He says that the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that one has sin and the other does not, but a Christian, a true Christian, is taking God's side, clinging to God, clinging to the hope of the gospel, reminding themselves of these truths. They're taking God's side against his remaining sin. Whereas an unbeliever who may be deceived and thinks they're a believer is nursing their sin, they're, 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 they're cultivating their sin, and they're justifying themselves, and they're taking sin side against God. And what Jesus is saying here is that what will mark his people, if you're truly a Christian, is not merely that you raised your hand at an altar call, or walked an aisle, or signed a card, or are a member of a church, or have a good doctrinal confession, but will truly, what will mark my people is that they will love me, and their love for me will work its way out in obedience in their lives. True conversion means a new heart. A new heart means new affections. And new affections leads to obedience. Finally, let's keep going. 
our peace. We end with this. Jesus says in verse 25, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, there again he calls him the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Notice the, notice the unity of the Trinity. The Father sends, the Son asks, the Holy Spirit's being sent in his name. In a sense, the Holy Spirit has always been active. He's co-eternal with the Father and the Son. It's not like he was created in the time of the New Testament. He was active amongst God's people in the Old Testament. But the great promise of the New Covenant is that the Holy Spirit will be poured out in a new way. And we see that on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And listen to verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. And I will no longer, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So now Jesus touches on our peace, and he says in verse 27, I'm leaving my peace with you. It's something that he gives. The world can't give it to us. And then right after that, he talks he alludes to the cross that the ruler of this world, verse 30, Satan is coming, but he has no claim on me, so it's going to get dark. Life is going to be hard here in just a few hours for these disciples, but he's reminding them that his peace is with them, and it's a peace that only Jesus can give, and it's a peace that clearly is a consequence of the work of our helper who dwells in his people and takes all that is Jesus's and makes it ours. The peace that Jesus gives. Oh, how we need to be reminded of this peace today. Oh, how easy it is to watch the news, to scroll, scroll through your news feed, and to be discouraged and anxious. And Jesus reminds his disciples and reminds us what he's left, what the Holy Spirit has guaranteed for us, his peace my peace, not as the world gives. And so what's the implication? What's the, what's the point we take away from this? Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Let me conclude by reading Psalm 46, and then I'll pray. David writes, and this is an Old Testament expression of this peace that Jesus is talking about. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. 
The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, take these words, take Jesus' teaching on the Holy Spirit and apply it to our hearts. Fortify us by a better understanding of the work of our helper. May it produce in us assurance, love that brings about more obedience and peace that only you can give. Lord, I pray that you would do this among us for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen.